0: It's Monday, September 25th, 2017. I'm Jeremiah Zimmerman, and this is episode 132 of the 5049 podcast. How you guys doing? You all right? You guys hanging in? We've got a good one for you today. We've got a special one for you today. Today on the show, trumpeter, composer, Band leader, podcaster, festival organizer, and um, just all-around active and, and virtuosic musician, Dave Douglas. That's who you hear back there. Dave Douglas is on the show today, and it's a good one. Before we get into it, uh, I just want to say thank you to everyone who has downloaded the new um, and first digital release from 5049. Chaos of Memory by Blood Mist, my trio with Toby Driver and Mario Diaz de Leon. Uh, We just put it up a couple weeks ago, and it seems like people like it. Uh, I'm very proud of it, and and if you uh, haven't already, please check it out. Just go to the 5049 site. It's the very first page. And if you're enjoying it, uh, consider purchasing a download. You know, to be perfectly frank, uh, I'm going into the studio with Mario and Toby in a few weeks. We're going to make our second studio record. And, and all the money that comes in from this uh, double live release is going straight to those costs. So, so music is paying for music. It's, it's a good thing. Check it out. Chaos of Memory. Blood Mist. I also want to remind you that if you're enjoying this show, please visit the Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash 5049podcast. Um, it allows you to sign up and become a monthly donor, and it helps. It helps, it helps, it helps. A lot of people have been commenting to me lately that the show has kind of gotten better. And it's it's not not because of that. I can put more time into the show. I can, I can upgrade gear. It, it helps. So if, if you're enjoying the show and you want to uh, uh, show a little appreciation, that's a good way. Okay, Dave Douglas. Um, I've been wanting to get Dave on the show for a while, and I think our initial email back and forth started well over a year ago. Uh, this, this took a long time to pin down, and I, I kind of honestly uh, thought it was never going to happen and when dave showed up at my house this was just maybe i don't know a month ago um it seemed like he was in a bit of time limit and and i didn't know if we would even be able to get a full episode down but but very quickly the conversation opened up and we had a really nice talk um i'm i'm really happy with how today's show came out and you know i don't know how much of an introduction a lot of you who listen to this show regularly will need uh into the world of dave Douglas. from where I'm standing, he seems to, to occupy a pretty secure and, and notable place within the world of, of jazz and improvised music. Um, as I said at the top of the show, you know, it's, it's not just what he does as a trumpet player. It's not just what he does as a band leader. Dave stays incredibly active. Uh, the Festival of New Trumpet Music is, is a festival that he co-organizes every year, and it's been going on in New York for, I think, like 15 years now. He's got his own record label, Greenleaf Music, and he's been putting out music on such a regular basis since he started the label well over 10 years ago. Uh, as I mentioned, he's a podcaster. I'm sure many of you are familiar with his podcast. Uh, it's called The Noise from the Deep I think we actually started our podcasts uh, around the same time. Um, and I'd imagine that there's, you know, a good amount of cross-listenership between our two shows. So, you know, it, it made sense to me for a lot of reasons to ha- to want to have Dave on the show. That music that you heard uh, up top, that was by his band Charms of the Night Sky with Mark Feldman, Greg Cohen, and, and Guy Klosivsek. When I first started getting really, really interested in... um you know the the world of improvised music and jazz and experimental music and you know a lot of the stuff that was happening sort of around uh you know downtown New York one of the first shows i went to was charms of the night sky this was probably like 1998 or something and and that record that i was just playing um you know that was an important record that was at a time in my life when i was listening to records uh Any record I got, I'd listen to over and over and over again. Um, So that record's definitely in my consciousness. You know, it's definitely left an imprint on me. And, you know, another reason I was curious to talk to Dave, um, there's a million reasons. Anyone who's been active for as long as he have, which at this point is over 30 years, um and has done you know a lot of the stuff that he's done you know and i'm just gonna say it you know he has been the trumpet player in masada for since the beginning of the band basically and that's been some of the most important music in my lifetime uh john zorn's masada has really shaped i I think quite a few of us and, and and the way we we approach music and improvisation so dave's a really crucial figure um and I'm really happy that this finally happened and that the conversation, you know, flowed and it was nice. We, we talk about a lot of stuff. We talk about music. We talk about Dave's history. We talk about podcasting. We talk about Masada. We talk about Zorn. We talk, today's a good one. Today, you know, I, I think you guys are going to enjoy today's conversation. For those of you who are not already familiar with Dave and, and what he's up to, I would encourage you to go to DaveDouglas.com. Got a lot of stuff happening records, tours, uh, podcasting, as I said. Also, check out the website for his record label, Greenleaf Music. That's greenleafmusic.com. Um, you know, again, I said it a second ago. I don't know how much of an introduction Dave really needs for a lot of you. Um, but if you don't know his stuff, you don't know his output, check it out. It's well worth your time. And that's it. Um, I hope you guys are all doing well. Things are a little weird right now, in the world, I mean. I hope you guys are hanging in. Okay, here's my conversation with Dave Douglas. Um, but down in this, in the Grand Street, it's all neighborhood restaurants
1: Checking out the next situation. Yes. Because I do a podcast. You do a podcast. <laughs> I just interviewed um, Carla Bley and Steve Swallow yesterday. Simultaneously. Yeah. I drove up. And do you get to their nervous house when and, you're talking to someone like that? Um. Well, I play with them. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I get nervous. Uh. But I, you know, I find that doing preparation. that's why I asked you if you wanted the music because yeah. what I I ask the person, you know, pick out some tracks that you'd like to talk about. That, yeah. 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 And I listen to the music and I develop a bunch of things that i think would be interesting to ask and then right. you know i feel like i'm prepared so. i mean carla blay literally wrote my favorite jazz tune ever Which jesus maria oh okay um i should have told her that but <laughs> but i also i i put out a tweet and i said i'm going to interview carla blay and steve swallow does anybody have anything they'd want me Do to people ask? get back to you yeah and i got about 10 i remember once i one went One bass to... player was like well how does he get that magical sound so it's not the worst question no, it's good. Yeah. and I found a, a sort of a way to phrase it, and I got some really interesting stuff. From I mean, I, about I just it.
0: heard I've I've heard Steve on some recent recordings, and to my ears, he sounds better than ever.
1: Yeah, a lot of people just said, you know, ask Carla about her compositional process, which is like, you know, could you be a little bit more, a little more specific? <laughs> <laughs> Wait, so
0: when did you, I think you and I started our podcast around the same time? Is that right? I started in two thousand thirteen.
1: Yeah, probably, probably.
0: Were you a fan of podcasts sometimes. before?
1: Not nah, a little bit, yeah, a little bit, but mostly political podcasts, yeah. and I didn't hear any music podcasts that I really liked at that time, especially musicians talking to musicians,
0: right. All of my favorite books about music are uh-huh. written by musicians, uh-huh. or you know are transcribed conversations between musicians uh I, there's just there's going to be a shorthand between musicians, there's going to be an understanding,
1: there's going to be an informality that I think is. Very beneficial, yeah. and it's why I try to put little musical excerpts in mine. Yeah, because for the layperson, okay, now you can hear what we're talking about. Oh, that's what that is. Yeah, and yeah I've had yeah, a yeah. lot of people write and say, "You really opened my eyes to what that. I was never able to hear that before, and now I right. get it." sometimes still even me, I listen to a piece and I say, well, here was my, this is what I think was going on. And then the person will say, well, actually, you know, like in the case of Jonathan Finlayson, he was uh-huh. like, that piece is literally a chess match. And I was like, well, what do you mean? And it's like <laughs> explained how each part in the. Band and how the improvisation worked and yeah, yeah it was yeah. like moving on a chessboard and then i listened again and i was like oh wow you can hear the whole time. now i can right hear, you know i didn't even pick that up before yeah yeah yeah, yeah. So it's I funny like there's like um i've always
0: been a really shy person uh-huh. and now that i've done 130 of these things Great. like i have met so many musicians you know so com- so common in new york i think to be aware of someone Mm-hmm. To you know, have, play with the same you know similar people, and for years never even come face to face, which is
1: really kind of weird and troubling to me. <laughs> do you do them all here?
0: Occasionally, I'll, I'll I'll go to people's places.
1: What do you What do you have? I got a little room recorder. Zoom, yeah, that's i that's what I've
0: yeah. Right into it. Yep. Um, it it works. It works great. well. I actually. Uh,
1: levels sometimes i'm still learning yeah well i, c- I could show you a couple of tricks that i learned okay i would appreciate that uh, I, I, you know what i always forget to do is as i'm doing it put on headphones yeah because that's the surefire way to know that that you're getting a good getting a good feed and it's not too loud and, it can be distracting though right and then but the, what i should do is set up with the headphones on yeah and then take them on right. Right,
2: right right anyway right. yeah
1: so you live and you learn but you live upstate now. You
0: don't live in the city. I live. Yeah, it's about an hour. Okay, but upstate. I mean, an hour upstate is
1: the universe away in a lot of ways. Well, I guess. When did you go up there? Two thousand four. So until then, I was in Park Slope. Like you've forever. been up there since two thousand four. Yeah. I had no idea. What What brought you up there originally? Uh, my wife basically said I can't live in the city anymore, and. Uh, we started i was going to keep the place in brooklyn and get a little shack like in woodstock yeah and then we decided we didn't want to have two houses but also it's like how often am i going to go back and forth and we want to be together so eventually right. i sold the place in brooklyn and got a place that was closer in yeah so i drive home after a gig yeah always yeah yeah late I mean, late stay nights. in the city right it takes you know it takes under an hour mm-hmm. after a gig mm-hmm. i grew up cool. around there and that's when I listen to my podcast, late night drives. Well, drives, you know, it's yeah. just it's on and you're. Where Where did you grow up? Monroe, New York. Oh, okay. Yeah, across the river, but yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's you know, forty five miles the community, north.
0: not that community. Okay, a different community. I grew up on an ashram. Wow. Uh,
1: well, uh, the Shivananda. Ananda no, ashram. Ananda, Great. but it's
0: right next to the community that I think you were just alluding to in well, yeah. Curious YOL. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, no. I grew. These two communities were sort of side by side in a town that.
1: And your parents, where are they from?
0: uh, My dad's from Poland, Uh and my mom
1: is from nowhere. She was an army brat, so she went to twenty. But they got into Ananda. Yeah, and they were teaching yoga, I would guess. And Mm -hmm. is it a Hindu? It's Hindu. It's Hindu. Uh, My mom. Did you grow up worshiping in Hindu faith?
0: I did not learn Hebrew growing up. I learned Sanskrit.
1: That's what I mean. Yeah. But I mean, did you worship, did you, when you had to go to Sunday school or- no, I grew up pretty godless. School or, they um, didn't, they didn't bring you up in the faith.
0: I, I have been an atheist since mm-hmm. I was probably four or five years old and- okay. Well, your parents in some sense must have allowed that to happen. They it's, both claim to believe in God. They both claim right. to uh, have, uh, you know, uh, a connection to something. Yeah. Um. But yeah, neither one of them ever really made any point of saying, you got
1: to believe this, you got to believe that. So, and we should get going on the interview. We're going. Oh, this is it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is going to go on your show. Yes. Oh, hello, podcast listeners. (laughs) Hello, podcast listeners. So my question to you then would be, if you learned Sanskrit and you were an atheist, Uh that's not connected to the Russ and Daughters family at all. It is is connected to it. So what's the connection there?
0: Josh, who's one of the two owners of Russ and Daughters, yeah. we both grew up on the same ashram. Our families have been friends for I see. four dozen thousand and years. And was it
1: a yoga thing, the ashram? Yoga was
0: there. Yeah. Um, the ashram is a very different place now than it was then. Right Now I think it's a little more structured. I think you have uh, people coming through who have their lives a bit more together and mm-hmm. are mm-hmm. somehow... Um, enhancing their lives through the practice of yoga and meditation. Mm -hmm. At the time, there was a lot of sort of wandering lost souls. And it was kind of, you know, this is, I'm talking about the late 70s, early 80s.
1: Yeah. Very different scene. Sure, of course. Are you from New York? I am originally from Montclair, New Jersey. Really? Yeah. So you're not, I, I thought I heard you grew up in New York. Well, in the tri-state area. Yeah. My dad worked for IBM, so in some sense an army brat. Not quite as international, mm-hmm. but every three or four years he would get relocated. So I lived in Chappaqua for a bit, uh, Montclair, uh, Woodstock, New York. Oh, but you never went too far from... Not too far from the New York area. Yeah. yeah. And then I went to boarding school in New England. Uh, and my junior year, I did a year abroad in Barcelona, uh-huh. which was just changed my life. Have any uh, students and then or... I went to Berkeley right. for one year, New England for one year, and then I came back to New York. So you've always been in the Northeast. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Have you ever lived outside of the Northeast? I lived for six months in Brazil. Six months. <laughs> I lived for six months in Geneva, Switzerland. Right. But I, I never, I never lost the intention of being a New Yorker. Yeah, I can't. Uh... I don't think I could live anywhere else. And actually, to tell you the truth, I'm, I'm getting sick of the winters. Uh, maybe our president will take care of that. We won't have harsh winters anymore. Right. But I- I've been going to Mexico on a retreat over the holidays for the last number of years. And it's so calm and peaceful and we love it there. And I leave my trumpet at home. Are you serious? Yes.
0: So let's talk about the trumpet because I I feel like you know a thing or two about the trumpet. You can't. The impression that I get from conversations that I have with my trumpet playing friends, the trumpet, uh, more than a lot of instruments, I, you know, it's you can't really take too much time off of practicing without,
1: or can you? Oh, everyone's different. Everyone's needs are different. Everyone's body is different. Everyone's inner idea of what a good sound is is different. Uh-huh. So I think the instrument is different for everyone, more than a lot of other instruments. Right. Um, so for many, many years, I never took a day off. and My trumpet went with me everywhere. Right. And for a long, long time. And then I... um when i started really touring a lot and playing night after night and having increasingly challenging music to play uh-huh. i mean tiny bell trio which was you and jim black me and jim black and brad shepik yeah and it was really hard because uh oh did i just no no jiggle no, no, no the cable sure it's hmm. okay. um you know i was playing melodies and solos and bass lines and i basically never took the horn off my mouth and right the music was really difficult and then of course playing with john zorn and masada you know john always the whole purpose is everybody to play everyone 10 times is yeah. yeah so that was really intense and uh, a bunch of other gigs that i did i mean when i early on in that period was touring with Don Byron playing the music of Mickey Katz. Right. That was a really strenuous book, learning all those Manny Klein uh-huh. solos. Uh-huh. Um, so when did you so feel what, comfortable? So what I was just going to yeah. say about taking time off was I, I was still in this period where I was just practice, practice, practice. And I had studied with Carmine Caruso and it was just wow. like full on build this up mm-hmm. and be invincible. Mm-hmm. And then um, I ran into some trouble where I just was overdoing it and I was getting burned out and my chops, I was having diminishing returns. Yeah. I was going on gigs feeling like, Oh, you know, you know I what? don't really know what to do to dig myself out of this problem. So that's when I went to Lori Frank, the great, uh, the great pedagogue the great, yeah. and trumpeter and human being. And one of the first things that she made me do was find out, find a way within my life and my demands to take three months off three months without touching the horn mm-hmm. to just start again from scratch and and A, enjoy it, and B, give myself a chance to figure out how to make it work. How old were you at this time? Oh, this would have been 94, ni- maybe 95. Okay. So I would have been 32.
0: Yeah. And when you think back on this advice that Laurie Frank gave you, how much of it do you think was about your physical relationship to the horn and how much of it do you think was about sort of an
1: existential question yes yeah. yes and i yeah, would yeah. say both of those things and more right um as she was a real genius
0: she was a very guru type it seems to a lot of yeah, people yeah and she
1: had insights from seeing people play and and she came to a lot of masada shows and tiny bell shows and different things I was doing and she developed her idea of how to help me out of watching me do what I do on stage. That's a pretty special specifically. Yeah. It was just such an amazing relationship. And, um, so it's, it's still hard work, but I feel like a few times a year, I try to find a week where I can not play a week. Yeah. Yeah. And then it, it takes me Five days to get back up to speed. So, like, let's say I have two weeks where I don't have any shows. Right. I might take the first week totally off the horn and spend more time composing and taking care of the label and other things. Breathing. (laughs) And then I have a week to get back in shape. Yeah. Get ready to do the thing.
0: I haven't played my horn just because this week has been so slammed for me and Mm -hmm. I haven't played in four days and I'm kind of freaking out right now.
1: Well, yeah, it's hard because you do have that ritual aspect of it where suddenly something that you spent many hours every day doing isn't there, yeah, and you start to miss it in this weird way. well,
0: how old were you when you started playing the trumpet?
1: Um, I guess I was nine. Had you played an instrument before that? Yeah, they started me on piano when sure. I was five, and i which I hated um. Why? Because they wouldn't let me improvise and was right. like only supposed yeah, to yeah. play the written music. And I, I couldn't seem to do the same thing the same way twice. Right. So then my father was an amateur musician um, who played he... piano and banjo and Baroque recorder and who knows what else. Right. And so when I started playing piano, he started looking for a horn because he was going to play <laughs> horn and I was going to accompany him. Right. And he bought an old trombone at like a yard sale. And it was just the minute it came in the house, it was mine.
0: Just the, the, the relationship, relationship to a brass instrument. Just,
1: I'm, I'm going to play a horn. This is so liberating. I don't have to sit in front of that stupid uh, piano. And...
0: How much of it is, you know, when you're playing, particularly a trombone, where it's a slide brass yeah. instrument, yeah. and the notes are not... I mean, the piano is the most literal instrument. You in see, a way, sure. You, know, you see the notes, they're separated. Yeah, uh,
1: was that was that a part of the? But attraction? We've all seen magical pianists that seem to somehow find the cracks. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> That's <laughs> perhaps
0: one of the secrets. Yeah. But when you pick up the horn and you phys- you physically can't see the notes, you're it's it's a more it's much more yeah. abstract world.
1: Yeah, was
0: that attractive to you?
1: I think it was just more the feeling of just having this one note to play and yeah. and having more control over the sound and also not having to take piano lessons and I really enjoyed the sound of the trombone and then so that was when I was seven and I I couldn't reach the furthest positions of the trombone but ultimately what happened was I was in the school band and a bunch of my friends played trumpet and I noticed that in all the arrangements we had in school band the trombones had like just long notes right and the trumpet always had the melody Mm -hmm. so I just was like okay i'm gonna switch right like that was a conscious thing i remember you deciding wanted more action on i'm gonna yeah, yeah. i want to be up front there playing those melodies with those guys yeah so when i was nine i switched to trumpet and uh you know had lessons and had really good teachers and good experiences with music but i never had good technique on the trumpet it was always my shortcoming like i were had you, a lot of were ideas the Teachers critical
0: of you and your technique they would let you know hey your embouchure is questionable
1: um I went through what a lot of trumpet players go through which is every new teacher tells you you have to change your embouchure and play a new way and you know you're not going to sound good for the next three months because you're going to play on the top part of your lip or the bottom part of your oh no you need to be on the side you know you need to do this you need to do that and it just never seemed to work for me and it was it was frustrating so when I got to Berkeley i had a teacher who i've told this story before and i'll just i'll make it short that uh, spent the whole year with him didn't really improve technically Uh in terms of like composition and conception and ideas i was making progress but trumpet no the end of the year he told me i should quit and do something else because
0: he didn't believe in your musical
1: commitment ability. no because the i the trumpet i just wasn't improving on the instrument It's just this isn't going to work out for you. You should quit and do something else. So I I did. That's why I transferred to New England Conservatory. Because you said I don't need this motherfucker, telling you. Yeah, I was. uh, Imagine how that's devastating. That that hurt me to hear that. Yeah. So he told me to quit, and uh, I quit Berkeley. And then I spent the whole summer in the basement of Berkeley practicing the entire Arbins. Like I would go eight, ten hour practice sessions. And how
0: much of that was I'm going to show this guy? Any of
1: it? No, I don't remember it that way, although probably there was some of that. But for me, it was more like I'm just determined to make this happen. And if I put in the time, it'll happen. And then actually what happened was that I met John McNeil, who's a great teacher and Uh a great trumpeter who lives in Brooklyn, but was teaching and still teaches at New England Conservatory. He introduced me to Carmine Caruso's technique. And then it was like within a month Everything everything, just locked into place. And and actually, I have to say, I still struggle. And I still... It takes me a long time to warm up. Uh-huh. And I still go to a gig with John Zorn, like, nervous as hell that the notes aren't going to come out. <laughs> because trumpet is just a little bit unpredictable. Trumpet, I feel like, from an outsider's perspective,
0: mm-hmm. is a real mindfuck of an instrument. Um, mm-hmm. I think it... it <sighs> You know, you pick up a guitar, you know it's out of tune, and mm-hmm. you know it's it's it's. I, and I don't mean to be dismissive or you know of any guitar players or anything, but I feel like the trumpet, one because it's trickier, and one you know as you were just saying, you know there are challenges that you might not even know you're going to encounter, but also the instrument itself, like I feel like the instrument sounds beautiful in spite of itself, almost <laughs> like it's a very loud uh, physical instrument. And when I, I just listened to Chet Baker this morning playing "Autumn in New York," mm-hmm. and it ripped my heart out of my chest, mm-hmm. yeah,
1: it's, well, it's like a human voice in that way. Yeah, yeah. I heard a really interesting interview with Anne Sophie Muter, where she was asked, "When two violinists play the same instrument, they sound different." And it's the same piece of wood and the same strings and sure. the same bow and they each pick it up and they sound different. Why mm-hmm. is that? And I thought she would say, well, everyone's body is different. Mm-hmm. And I, actually she said that the reason people sound different is that their inner imagination of what a good sound is, is different. So everybody is what they think they want to hear and the sound they're trying to produce. We all have, a different conception mm-hmm. of that and that is what makes musicians different. Yeah. And and I think well singers you hear it right away but I think trumpet players more than a lot of other instruments you hear when you hear Peter play. Mm-hmm. You know he's hearing things that i don't hear he's hearing quite a lot of things at once yeah. i would say and nate is hearing other things and yeah. uh jeremy pelt is hearing other things and marquise hill and yeah. all these trumpet players that i love and i over the years because of the trumpet festival i've done a lot of gigs with multiple trumpet players sure. and it's amazing to me how different everyone plays stephanie richards is a fantastic She's phenomenal trumpeter but and just not i'm like okay here's right. another you know and then it's funny because I've never really thought myself about being original and trying to have my own sound and do my own thing. But then in those contexts, I pick up the horn and I start to play and I'm like, oh, right, that's Dave. Right, I got something to say here. <laughs> <laughs>
0: There's, I mean, it's not, another thing I'll say about the trumpet and, and going back, because Chet Baker is really not just one of my favorite trumpet players ever, yeah. but one of my favorite musical forces to have ever mm. con- you know, gone through this earth. And there's something, you know, especially some of the later records where he, you can hear he's frail. You can hear he's in bad shape. You can mm-hmm. hear that he's lost um, a considerable amount of musicianship. It's, it's almost like sick and voyeuristic for me to say this, but like, I, I appreciate this aspect of it. I appreciate hearing the musical choices of someone working with a limited, mm-hmm. uh, no, not limited, a diminished skill set with an instrument that really asks a lot of a player, I think. Mm-hmm. I think I think the trumpet highlights you if 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 you know if you know what you're listening for or maybe not I think the trumpet does a good job of demonstrating what the player is going through
1: physically and uh-huh. hmm. maybe I don't know I think it's just that Chet knew what he was trying to say yeah and whatever issue with the instrument he was having he was just going to take whatever was there and make that music out of it yeah you know and it is an instrument that's like that and i've realized over the years from going to masada gigs and realizing you know what these notes are not going to come out (laughs) and it's still going to be and i'm going to do something else well that's an improviser and i think that that's what chet very much i mean there's all those late tapes where he is playing and then he's scatting Mm -hmm. and then he's singing the melody and then he comes back in and there's sort of that same vulnerable, broken yep. feeling. Doesn't matter which vehicle, yeah, it is. Yeah, you know, and I think you can't separate that from all the years on the road and all the years of making that music and yeah. how many performances of My Funny Valentine can you still do and pull even more depth out of it, you know, it's, and yeah, I mean, you know, he went through a lot of addictions and yeah, he, just he crazy. he
0: treated himself yeah. pretty poorly from what I understand. Did you, when you were growing up, like when did jazz music first become important to you?
1: Um, pretty early actually. I, I don't know that I would have called it jazz, but, um, like I said about my dad, he just listened to a lot of different kinds of music. He didn't have like a huge collection, but it was just broad. Yeah. So, uh, there, my, I have two older sisters and I had an older brother who passed away a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. but they all had their music that they listened to too. So everything was around and pop music and classical and jazz and mm-hmm. folk music and, um, my father had bought the Smithsonian the collection of classic jazz. Oh. The Martin Williams collection. Uh huh. And, um, you know, I mean, this record came out in probably 71, 72. So I was eight or nine. Mm-hmm. And the the final two LPs, they had Cecil Taylor, Enter Evening, Ornette Coleman, Free Jazz. Oh, God. Congeniality. Oh, God. Don Cherry. <laughs> yeah. Coltrane playing Alabama um Eric Dolphy was on there of course Miles Davis Thelonious Monk and I listened to the earlier sides also Coleman Hawkins and Billy Holiday mm-hmm. and Lester Young and but I gravitated towards the 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 later stuff and when I think how fresh that was in 72 those records were what, 5 years, years old, old. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and there I was in, in Montclair New Jersey listening to free jazz right With Freddie Hubbard and... um, And it it grabbed you quickly? I just felt like here is music where one can be oneself. Where you're not tied down by what somebody else is telling you to do all the time. And Mm -hmm. I think that I loved classical music and I loved pop music. Mm -hmm. But what I gravitated towards was music that had more freedom in it for the players mm-hmm. and that's what i you know and i i listened in high school listened to a lot of weird, weird music went through phase with prog rock and oh really and yeah and, <laughs> it's usually a phase <laughs> yeah and where's well gentle giant stands up in yeah. my
0: opinion. you know and and you never uh so I, i'm curious about
1: something you james said James chance what is it james, well, uh, james chant by the contortions oh he yeah what was his name? It was James Chance. Chance. Yeah, Chance. yeah, yeah, yeah. Sax player. Yeah, yeah. he's, he's still around? He's, started, he's playing again. Down here, right? Yeah, yeah. I think he I went through those a, records. Uh, and uh, Ornette's electric music, and Miles' electric and, music, yeah. and and Weather Report. And I mean, these are several. Joni Mitchell's
0: universe. music. Oh, with uh, with Jaco? Well, I,
1: I discovered Joni because of the record Mingus. Right. You know, with That had Herbie Hancock, and Wayne Shorter, and Jaco Pastorius, and yeah. Peter Erskine, and that was my way in to all of that.
2: Yeah,
0: I mean, you know, it's always been one of those things. I feel like for musicians, sorry about that banging back there, I've always been, very early on, I was trying to find out what the musicians I liked listened Mm -hmm. to. That was how I found the next thing. It was like going right to the source, you know? Mm -hmm. But I'm curious, did you and your father ever play music together?
1: Um, Standards, yeah. He went back to the piano and... I learned to play tunes by reading over his shoulder from the fake book, which is why I can't really read transposed trumpet parts. Really? Even to this day. (laughs) Yeah, I have to be really specific when I... Please send concert charts. Conceptually,
0: I I still have a hard time with transposing instruments and just like the why of it.
1: Oh, I I I don't know. I think also, you know from being a composer you just get used to thinking in concert pitch right and that's the way i always did it and that's you know and that's how i learned early on to tunes yeah and that was really the basis of the music that i learned to perform earliest in my life right it was, was was jazz tune standards when you were playing music with your father
0: <laughs> how can i say this i i always gravita- gravitated towards music because it was a thing that I could, like a little world I could have to myself mm-hmm. separate from parents, separate from mm. people that I wasn't interested in.
1: Yeah, I I, I would second that. Sure. Yeah, but yeah it was, was when I left the house and found people my age to play our own music with, that's when I really yeah. felt like I was part of something.
0: But did you feel like you were connecting with your dad in a special way when you did play music?
1: Yeah, it was pretty early on. Yeah, I guess so. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: I I wish I had grown up in a home where
1: music would have been a family activity. Well, you guys were chanting, I'm sure, at the ashram.
0: I I, I attended a lot of really interesting concerts. Mm-hmm. I attended amazing concerts. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, world-class mm-hmm. Hindustani classical music as well as jazz and going mm-hmm. to the symphony and uh, going to see Jimmy Cliff when I was a little kid. You know, a real yeah. variety of stuff. But But the aspect of playing music... relaxed environment with Mm -hmm. family just for the sake of playing music that's Mm -hmm. you know if if i i'm not gonna have children but if i did i Mm. would want that to be Mm -hmm. something in the home
1: huh nice i guess so i mean you know i have a stepson who's 22 he's been you know with me since he was about eight Mm -hmm. and he plays guitar and uh he's learned jazz, but his thing is really video game music and and metal. And, Mm uh, he, uh, over the years, we've talked about music a lot and I've shared a lot of records with him and taken him to a lot of shows. Mm -hmm. And he would ask me theoretical or about tunes or, you know, and I helped him when he was going to college interviews, auditions. I helped him with those tunes. Yeah. But, I sort of feel like it's important for a musician to find their own space. Sure. And so on some level, even though there's been music in our house and he's heard me do my trumpet routine probably 5,000 times, <laughs> um, it's more like the kind of thing where we talk about it and we might play, and I might show him something at the piano or we listen to a record or I took him to see Bill Frizzell play like a dozen times. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And... Uh, and then he goes up in his room, and he's just working it out, working Internalizing it. it and then externalizing yeah. it. Yeah. 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 And I think that that's, you know, he has his own musical world. And right. I really respect that, and I think it's great. The one time that I did um, drop everything and go running up to his room was when I came home from tour, and I had all my bags, and he was playing a blues with the metronome on one and three. And I was like... <laughs> this will not stand i just like dropped everything and i ran upstairs i thought, like, stop not under and my then, roof yeah yeah and you know so i showed him you know you, it's got to be on a two and four it's like you, you can't it's, you just you, it's so backward you know he was like well why i was like well the, you know this is what swing is and this is right how this works feel, and baby. this is the yeah. feel of the music and the music that you're learning comes from a very specific place and let's respect and doing two and four these are good values i go downstairs and the metronome is on and i can hear it and he's not playing and i can hear (laughs) he's like and after a few minutes he goes dave i'm like what he goes my metronome doesn't go on two and four throw it out the window it only goes on one and three right but it's just like a a, a clicking yeah yeah, so it it's like for me it's like there's the internal world of music yeah. Right? Because the metronome was clicking the same way. Yeah. yeah and yeah. just asking you to shift your perspective. Yeah. And flip it upside down is the thing that we have to learn to do as musicians and as human beings, right? Uh, of course. To adapt to circumstances. Of
0: course. And and have the ability to, to zoom out and see things from, you know, from yeah. sort of like a bird's eye view and then zoom back in and kind of take a look around at what you're yeah. dealing with at any moment. The mu- One of the musicians who really I learned a lot from in that. Uh, in that specific idea, it was Butch Morris. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I played uh, with him two, three dozen times. Mm -hmm. And he would, did you ever play with Butch? Yeah, a lot. Yeah. Who, by the way, I heard him play solo cornet once, Mm -hmm. in person. Mm -hmm. But a solo five minute piece, it was one of the most transformative listening Mm -hmm. experiences of my life. But Butch would do this thing where he would he would you know through his conductions you know Mm -hmm. he would get you to start playing some phrase or part Mm -hmm. of a phrase and it would make no sense at all Mm -hmm. and it was really one of those moments of like I just have to trust that this guy has an idea and then oh now I see how it makes sense Mm -hmm. now that I hear the orchestration and how this relates to what's going on musically Mm -hmm. I can hear how it makes sense Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and it was a really it was a really for me it was one of those experiences of having the the mindfulness of it might not make sense yet, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, but yeah. you're with someone you trust. It will, you know, hopefully make sense.
1: Also, starting from the most simple thing is something we lose sight of as musicians, as human beings, too. But uh-huh. we're talking about music. Um Realizing, Okay, when something doesn't make sense, if I have that trust that you're talking about, mm-hmm. let me step back and do this in the most simple way that I possibly can and see if I can't make that light bulb go off right. for myself. And that requires real vulnerability. Yeah. And, and honesty. Mm-hmm. You know, but like you said, trust. Yeah. Knowing that the truth is out there. <laughs> it's a different
0: podcast. <laughs> so so you leave Berkeley uh somewhat
1: disenchanted or oh uh, very angry. angry. Yeah. Angry. But but I didn't want to leave music school, but you know, I got to say I learned a lot at Berkeley. And um, I still, some of the things that I learned in harmony and arranging and compositions are still with me. I still think about them. And then I went to New England Conservatory for a year and came at it a whole different way. You know, Uh the classical uh, theory and harmony and ear training, 20th century ear training was one of my favorite classes. Yeah. And uh,
0: Did you know that you were going to... That the NEC uh, the world of NEC was gonna have a bit more openness
1: to it. Um I'm not sure what you mean. I, I mean, don't I, think that it did have more openness at that time. Really I mean, we're talking the early eighties. So So who was there, there at the time? It was not what what do they call it now? CI, contemporary it was improvisation. Contemporary improvisation. That wasn't happening. And yeah. what about third stream? There was third stream, but it was very sectioned off. Yeah. And I was in the jazz department. Um but what I would say, the big difference was that even jazz students were getting exposed to classical challenges, theory, harmony, sight uh-huh. reading, uh, ear training, um, awareness. That's exciting. Yeah, I, I liked it a lot. You know, the, the biggest difference between the two schools was that, and I of course, it's so many years later, I don't know if this is still sure. happening there, but at Berkeley, everybody was playing sessions every night. Which I would go into the basement at 6 p.m. and I'd leave at midnight having played three different sessions with three different groups. Informal, just calling tunes, Yeah, you know, real book or whatever. Uh Or sometimes people would bring in originals and everybody was just hanging out playing. Um, And there were no sessions at New England Conservatory. Nobody was doing informal jam sessions that I met. Why is that? Um... Well, one thing was that the facilities weren't there, you know, building closed at a certain, you know, probably 7 p.m. or something. The facility wasn't there for us to do that, but it also, it wasn't encouraged as much. Like, we'd have official ensembles where you'd get to play, Mm -hmm. but there wasn't um, this informal feeling of people just getting together and, and playing what they wanted to play. So the year I was at New England Conservatory, I would do my school day, and then I would go back over to Berkeley in session all night.
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's great that you were able to navigate that, to look at the two worlds and take what you needed from each of them. I guess, yeah.
1: Yeah, but I, at the end of that year, I just felt like, boy, I, I, I've been plied so full of information I could spend the rest of my life practicing mm-hmm. this stuff. So, you so just did- I got out of school. I, I, I left music school. You didn't Took graduate. a year off oh. and just practiced. Living in Boston? And, uh, first living in Boston and then I went to Brazil mm-hmm. and I had a hotel gig and just practiced during the day. Uh, and then at the end of the high season when the hotel gig ended, I moved to Sao Paulo and lived with a bass player friend and just did sessions and practiced all day. How was that? It was pretty intense for a young man. I think um, I think back on it, I was a little oblivious to what was going on around me. But what was I just going on was, around? Like transcribing um, live at the Plug Nickel right. and uh, <laughs> trying to learn Wayne Shorter solo on sure. Green Dolphin Street.
0: But what was going on? What was the? What were the surroundings in São Paulo like in you know the mid eighties for a young trumpet player? Well,
1: it was funny musically. Um, everyone because I was an American jazz musician everyone wanted to play jazz with me right and I was like I want to play samba and, and bossa nova. nova yeah yeah and, yeah you know I want to so the compromise would be we would play jazz tunes but with samba rhythm okay so I learned how to sort of t- what that was supposed to feel like and how to do it but also we were playing like countdown and giant steps right. and satellite <laughs> and in these rhythms which was interesting you know and and just to step back i mentioned earlier that my junior year in high school i spent in barcelona and that time you know i was 15 Mm -hmm. but i ran into a bunch of musicians my age in the town where i was living with a spanish family with a catalan family Mm -hmm. and was in a band and that's when i played my first gigs and it was all yeah 15 16 in spain yeah with a, a drummer named David Chirgu, who's now one of the top guys on the scene in Barcelona. Yeah, And uh, they were all speaking Catalan, but we were playing tunes from the real book. So Joe mar- Beam tunes, uh-huh. and Monk tunes, and uh-huh. we would listen to Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers. And, you know, we were just, like, super into it.
0: And that was your first gig?
1: Those were, yeah, yes. And, and what, what was yes. the... Yeah, that would have been my first performances and actually there's a poster from one of those gigs in one of the places where we play outside barcelona i can't remember the name of the town right now but it's a big jazz club and they have you know wall is covered with old posters and there's one poster that says david douglas trumpet (laughs) and it's like from the late 70s and the name of the band we didn't have a name for the band and so the club owner was like, well, I have to put something on the poster. Mm-hmm. What do you guys want to call the band? And my friend, the guitar player, said, this is Perez Soto. who You might have heard, you know, a great guitar uh-huh. player. He told the club owner, well, we have an American trumpet player. So, so the it. only American thing that the club owner could think of was Buffalo Bill. So it says Buffalo Bill Quartet wow. featuring David Douglas on trumpet. <laughs> <laughs> it's so great. Do you have a copy I don't have a copy. I, I yeah. might have taken a picture. Unfortunately, there's no photographs of us. Right. I have a couple pictures from that time that are very closely guarded at my house. Yeah.
0: When you, when that first gig as Buffalo Bill Quintet featuring David Douglas, you finish the gig, you walk off the bandstand.
1: Oh. What was the first, like, do you remember the feeling? I think I just probably tried to get a drink. Yeah. I don't, I I would imagine you succeeded in Spain. You know what? I, I, I don't ever remember a big transition from. Not having not playing gigs to playing gigs, right it didn't seem that different from me for me, but to, did you to feel what like, I had always done like I have to do that again, like this is that def- um, i I don't know why, but I always just felt like, well, this is my life, this is what I'm gonna be doing, yeah, it just didn't seem so i i didn't I, I think I had that eagerness to do it more, mm-hmm. but not like. Oh my God, this is an incredible high. Mm-hmm. I've never felt this before. It was more like, okay, this yeah. is it. This is what I do. Yeah. This, yeah, this yeah. is regular thing. And um, those early gigs, you know, were, were really important to me, but also the fact that it was with people my age and we were doing what we wanted to do it wasn't like i got a gig and i had to read somebody else's book and fill some other shoes we were all just trying to be ourselves freedom and i think that that is just the way that i've always gone about it and sure there have been obstacles along the way because that's i didn't took me a long time to realize that's not the musical experience for everybody Mm -hmm. maybe for not for most people
0: not for most people i would say
1: and i i had a real shocker because then, you know, after uh, during that year off, I also did a cruise ship gig, I remember now. And I didn't have a lot of experience. I didn't have any experience playing commercial music or like sight reading a show book mm-hmm. or anything like that. That's what that job is. Yeah, and i went into it and i screwed it up so bad the first night that they almost like went back to port and fired. Serious? it was me and my buddies so all of us were in the same boat and we'd signed on for this thing and the opening event was this um country and western show review and there was a book and there were singers and dancers that we were supposed to accompany right and we didn't know the tunes and we were bad sight readers, but they were like standard tunes, like that you're supposed to know, like "On the Road Again," right? Which I had never heard in my life because that was just a big <laughs> gap for me. I never listened to pop music, so the opening of the show is the, "On the Road Again," and the trumpet has the melody, and it's a song that like everyone in the audience could just yeah. sing, yeah. And there I am, like messing it up,
0: and not and even the covering is, it like, up gracefully. You're like, just sort of like, no, it was flubbing yeah. through it, yeah. That must have felt like
1: shit. Again, I just don't think that I really experienced it that way. (laughs) I was just like, man, those cats are a drag. They can't dig this. You know, man, a bunch of squares. Yeah, but I was just a jazz guy. Right. I didn't have the... I'd never been asked to play in any context other than just being myself. Sure. And that's, I guess that there's pluses and minuses to that, Right,
0: right. Right, but did you feel like, oh, next time I should do my work before I get to the gig?
1: Not about that particular gig because uh-huh. I think I just didn't have I mean, in so general. much respect for that of course gig. Not. Right. But um in uh, any other situation, yes. Yeah. Even when I was playing weddings and and uh you know, bar mitzvahs mm-hmm. which I've done more than my fair share of sure. the weddings and or mitzvahs and brisses and There's no shame in that game. divorces and, y- you know, you name it, I've played it. Well, you know, and, my way. And learning like Madonna tunes that I'd never heard. Right. And having to kind of stand there in your little tuxedo and pretend like you know the song. And the first time the horn line comes around, you hear the sax player do it. And then you got to just the second time you have to nail it. Yeah. And I felt like, okay, this is why they gave us ear training in music school. Because this is ear training, you know. Yeah. Yeah, figure yeah, yeah. out your part on this song and, that you've never heard. And make it into music. Yeah, yeah. And play Be musical. well. Be And, and yeah. try to bring your best self in every time. So I guess that that cruise ship experience maybe was an anomaly for me because I... I I was with my buddies in the band and we just thought the whole thing was hilarious and we just had a good time. We <laughs> but like, they didn't throw you off ups. the boat. <laughs> they didn't throw us off the boat. We survived. But after the three-week ordeal was over, we, none of us really so went we back, back to that right. niche of the right. music business. <laughs> so when what, what year did you first move to New York City?
0: As a young musician ready to...
1: I Well, I came back in 1984 to go to NYU. Uh-huh. So I had saved all my credits from... Berkeley and New England, and I went to what was then called the Gallatin Division Mm -hmm. at NYU. It's now its own school, I think, the Gallatin School. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's an independent study branch. Right. So I wasn't in the music department or the jazz department. Uh, I could draw on courses from anywhere within the university, but I could also take lessons with people independent. I could say, which I did, I want to study with Carmine Caruso. Mm Mm-hmm. And I could do so for credit. And so he was paid by NYU from my tuition, of course. Uh-huh. But I got weekly lessons with Carmine Caruso for credit. I went to Joe Lovano's apartment for a semester every week and just played with him. What As was that like? My, it was great. It was fantastic. Were you Were you a fan of his before that? I knew him. Yeah. I mean, I knew he was playing. Yeah. And, I, you know, one of my favorite groups of all time was the Paul Motion Trio. Mm-hmm. So I was going to hear them all the time. At the Vanguard? I I think it was before Paul could play at the Vanguard. They would play at the Knitting Factory and remember that club Vigiones. And, uh, Where was Vigiones? Vigiones was on the corner of uh, West 3rd and McDougal. So just oh, down wow. the street yeah. from the Blue Note, there was right. a club that used to book a lot of people. Huh. Because
0: that's also right, right where the Village Gate was, in the Village, under, the village, the village Underground. Village, yeah, yeah, somewhere. Yeah. So you started going to the Native Factory because you wanted to check
1: out Paul Motion. And I would check out Zorn, and I checked out Tim Byrne, and all kinds of people that were playing there. And um, um, a lot of people I wasn't familiar with. Um, but I would also go, I went to all the, the major jazz clubs and mm-hmm. didn't have enough money. So I would just sit out by the front door and listen to the music. Mm-hmm. Like I'd go sit on the stairs at the Vanguard or I would go um, stand in the foyer of the Blue Note mm-hmm. and they would let you stand there for like five minutes and then they would come out and chase you out. <laughs> and then I would go to um, stand in front of the window at Sweet Basil's. Ah, I remember Sweet Basil. Yeah. Yeah. And I would go stand in the doorway at the 55 bar and hear Mike Stern play and I would go
2: Did you ever you know, lush he... life? Yeah. and
1: people used to play there and and uh, you know it wasn't until some years later that the knitting factory really came in and uh and and turned into what you know the 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 sort of location that it became.
0: Right. I mean it you know it's like a well, I don't want to speak ill of anything, but certainly the Knitting Factory it, it turned into like an Icarus kind of thing. It turned in, you know, it
1: went. It's, it still exists, doesn't it's it? It's in Brooklyn. It's in Williamsburg. Yeah. And there's one,
0: I think, in Las Vegas or something it's, like that.
1: Yeah. Uh, or, or in L.A. LA. And then yeah. one in Washington. There's one in Hollywood that I yeah. actually used to play at. Yeah. I don't think, I think now they're mainly showcases. Yeah. Well, it's my, it's, it's rock
0: music now. Um, no. It's completely, it's just a completely different club with the same name. Right. Did
1: you ever go see Jewfree at Sweet Basil? Jew free. I can't remember. Maybe, maybe not. You know, I had him uh, for an ensemble coach at NEC for a semester. And I? I, unfortunately, at the time, I, somebody should have shaken me and said, Do you realize who this guy is? He, like, they didn't really make us aware.
0: His music hadn't been on your radar. I, no. He was just an old Texan or later. Oklahoman.
1: <laughs> and he would play saxophone every now and then and you know it was incredible yeah here i was just like oh my he would God. demonstrate in class or he would sit in which just you demonstrate yeah you know and i had friends who were taking saxophone lessons with him and clarinet lessons how was he as an instructor they said he was amazing and for you in the ensemble said he was i think i mean i didn't i didn't understand yeah what was happening i don't think that i um he had all of these arrangements of his own, of standard jazz tunes, Mm -hmm. that were really great, of course, and altered and different from the original tunes. And I had learned all these tunes, and I came in, I was like a tune player, so I would be like, well, that's not really the melody to right around midnight uh-huh. and he'd say well i'm the arranger and this is the decision i made so you'd have to play it the way that i've
2: written yeah. it
1: and if you think about it that's a very classical aesthetic yeah i mean he was but you know, also it's stupid of me to be so disrespectful to think at that I mean, age but that I would kid.
0: yeah right i, I knew mean, everything yeah, yeah you know there was that great quote uh, i'm not young enough to know everything right <laughs> right when you but when you think back when you kind of you know you you access your memories and that time of
1: being in the classroom with jimmy jufri I just remember being challenged to play as well as I could play, yeah and 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 trying to fit in and the ensemble and you know blend my sound. And I think at that time I was just getting into the Carmine Caruso technique, and so I was still trying to get a grip on my instrument mm-hmm. and just trying to not screw up.
0: I wrote a letter to Jimmy Jufri oh. uh about a m- month before he died. Mm. Uh you know, I'd heard for a long time that you know he hadn't been doing well and you know I wrote him a letter, you know, just saying hey, you know, uh, you know I admire all of your yep. music and you know it's meant a lot to me. Thank you for Good. the music and I sent the letter about a month later he passed away, or maybe a few weeks. And mm-hmm. then a few weeks after that the letter came back to me. Oh Uh, Because I guess I'd sent it to an address Unopened, it was an old address Yeah, so it never made its way to him Um, But, you know, Jimmy Jufri I I do get sort of And I think this is uh, Common with a lot of jazz You know, the the Mm -hmm. autobiographical Or the biographical nature of it Mm. Is part of it for me And Mm -hmm. I really When I hear Jufri play I hear a sweetness I hear a curiosity I hear a tenderness That really has changed the way I hear things
1: You ought to talk to Steve Swallow about that sometimes because he has some great, I don't want to crib Steve Swallow's stories, but he's talked a lot about the trio with Jimmy and what Jimmy's mentality was like and and how the band broke up and why things went down the way they did. And I think you would really enjoy hearing that. Um, My way in with Jufri was the earlier group, was the Jim Jim Hall, Bob Brookmeyer. Yeah. And I had transcribed all of those arrangements. Like the train in the river and... Yeah, and um, picking them up and laying them down and traveling light and, yeah. um, you know, swamp people. And yeah. uh, I just loved the way the conception of the music was so light mm-hmm. and yet springy. Yeah. Like rooted, floating, nobody's pushing anybody, but it's definitely not lagging.
0: Did you ever read his book? No, I got a copy
1: of it. I'll show it to you. He's, I'd like to see it. It's a technique book oh. um,
0: on you know how to play jazz and how to swing. It's like, oh. Oh. but in the in the open in the introduction, oh, I've never seen that he explains that uh, to really play this music, you know, mm-hmm. when you're improvising on melodies and mm-hmm. you're you know you, you're looking for a pulse, he's like you got to just picture it as like a thing that's just flowing on and you're just going with the traffic. <laughs> right. Right.
1: Well, yeah, he certainly played that way.
0: Yeah. So who were the first people that you hooked up with in New York where you began to play music and.
1: Um, you know, the week I got to New York, I landed a few gigs just completely randomly. One was, um, a saxophone player I knew named Carol Chakin invited me to play in the street with a band with Mark Lambert and Kermit Driscoll. Oh. And I can't remember who the drummer was. And it was like, you know, we had a gas powered generator and so the amps would be plugged into the generator. Uh-huh. And, uh... We went out and played in Columbus Circle, and unbeknownst to me, we had poached the spot. Unbeknownst to any of us, from a regular street oh. group, who, the rule of the street, I, I played on the street for years. You did, and the rule on the street was whatever group got there first—that's who's got they it. They had it. Sure. So some bands would send someone out at like ten in the morning, right, to hold the spot, right. Um, so we had poached this spot and we had a really fun day and just had a great time playing music and actually made some real money. Did the other, did the other band there. confront you guys? The other band, uh, the, the band leader was Vincent Herring. <laughs> and he heard me and got my phone number and called me to be in his band. And he went- they poached me. <laughs> from the band. Yeah. Something, yeah, there was a tenor player named Charles Davis, not the Charles Davis that you might know, but a a younger guy who was great and a bass player named Hayward Peel and a guitar player named, uh, oh God, so long ago and I I saw him recently. He plays Brazilian music now. I'm so sorry. No, that's okay. Um, Sometimes Bruce Cox would play with us and uh, um. God, now I'm kicking myself that I. Uh, I'm just. I, I guess you, I'm getting to a certain age where names are disappearing. <laughs> but um, uh, so there was that. That became a big thing for me because a few years later, when Horace Silver called and hired me for his band, Vincent Herring got the gig at the same time, completely independently of that, me. And that was just a coincidence. Total coincidence. And did so, you and Vincent look at each other like? Well, Vincent came out to the street and he said, hey, guys, I'm not going to be here next season, you know. Yeah. And everybody's like, oh, what happened? Yeah, man. Horace Silver. And I was like, oh, me too. And he's like, screw you. You post him again. I'm I'm trying to keep the language clean on your your bike. (laughs) So So, then we ended up going on the road with Horace Silver. With Horace Silver. But the other thing that happened that first week in New York was that I met, um, who was it? that I knew from Boston. Marc Vagnon, the Swiss vibraphone player, was Uh playing with a band called Dr. Nerve, led by the guitar player Nick Nick Yeah, And they were forming this new thing with horns, and he brought me in on that. So I was rehearsing with them starting my first week. With Dr. Nerve? Dr. Nerve. (laughs) So it was like these two things that happened. The very first was June 2000. No, June 1984. Yeah. And... I just those were my first two gigs that I had. Um, Where were you living? And that was before I even enrolled in NYU. I started that September at NYU, right. 1984, and did two years and actually got a bachelor's degree, yeah, just in arts. Right. Uh, I was living in the in Greenwich Village. My okay. first apartment was the corner of uh, Waverly and Christopher. That's a happening corner. It was great, and I I actually <laughs> the first night I moved in said to my roommate, who was Bob D., the guitar player who I also knew from Boston, I said, I'm going to just stroll down the street and see if there's anything happening. And I go halfway down the block, and it's the 55 Fire Mike, bar, Mike right? Stern is playing. I yeah, like, yeah, I'm in the right place. Anyway, I just heard him with Miles, you know. It's, yeah. it's like, oh, my God. I mean, at that time, all those clubs were right around there. Yeah.
0: You could go to the Vanguard. You could go, yeah. I mean, I guess a lot of them and still And I used are. to go
1: stand in the doorway because I didn't yeah. have enough money. I had this
0: experience there. a couple weeks ago where I ended up at the Vanguard in the middle of the afternoon. Uh-huh. Just me and Zorn and Debbie. And Great. There's something about going into a space when it's mm-hmm. not in business, mm-hmm. when it's quiet, and yeah. you can sort of like hear the, yeah. you know, if these walls could talk, you know, mm-hmm. you can kind of hear the walls talk a little bit. And Debbie was, you know, she, you know, telling me stories about the sure. space, and, and it was like, I, I was there for about an hour and a half, and when it was done, I, I told Debbie, I said, "This last hour and a half, this is the reason I moved to New York. You know, mm-hmm. thank you for this afternoon." I Great.
1: Yeah. These, I mean, there, there, a lot of these spaces are sacred spaces. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, and you gotta hope that that stays the way it is. Yeah, you know, New York changes. Yeah, yeah. It, so it's been. But that's few. been there a long time. It's been there
0: a long time. I mean, that place, like at this point, it just like popped up out of the ground like a potato or something. It's pretty amazing.
1: Yeah, and th- there are people who've taken measurements and, and and tried to figure out how one could build a new one that would sound and look exactly the same. It's perfect which, the way it is. No, 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 but I mean if, yeah. God forbid, something should ever happen, right, we could somebody in Japan <laughs> could find a basement and build another one.
0: So how long did you play with Horace, Horace
1: Silver? It was about six months. And what was that? tour? Like? Oh, it was amazing. It was my dream. I couldn't believe it. That was your dream? Was, oh, yeah. Yeah. It was, I mean, I wish I'd played better. Who was There's in the some band? surviving YouTube videos from that time, really? and I feel like, okay, well gave it my best shot you're what 22 years old something like that yeah i mean 23 yeah and uh i i just um i mean he i've told these stories about him but he he i mean he he allowed us to stay in the band us young guys but he was on our case about what we were playing.
0: And what What do you mean? Well, of, like, it's
1: not hip what, you, what you're what you playing. You know, the way that you're making that resolution is not cool. And uh, you're trying to fit all these notes in over this chord, but these are the notes in the chord. And what's hip is how you move from one chord to the next. Yeah. Not all that garbage. You know, you, you young cats got the wrong message from Coltrane, was how he would huh. say it. You know, and I'm like, go on. But he he would talk at length and he could do things like you you would say, I don't don't really know what you mean. And so then you he goes, okay, well, let's play, you know, and then we'd play and you'd be soloing. And then he would stop the band and he would play back the last eight bars of what you played with the chords in the left hand. He
0: would play back
1: for you what you played, what you just played. He'd go, here's what you did Uh and here's why this isn't hip. Here's this resolution here from this note and this chord to this note and this chord. See how that's not hip? And what do you say back to that? Uh, you're but, right, well, sir. Some, some of us would be like, I don't know what you're talking about. That sounds hip to me. Yeah. But I, my thing was more like, yeah, just okay, wow, can you do that again? I mean, it you sounds know.
0: like, I mean, one, that'd be an amazing thing to witness. It's
1: an amazing thing, but but it was also, it was very specific to his music. And he, for the trumpet role, I think that his favorite trumpeter was um, Blue Mitchell. Mm. And, you know, who we had in the band for a long time. Mm-hmm. And, and the records that I was most familiar with from learning his music were the records with Woody Shaw mm-hmm. and Joe Henderson. Mm-hmm. And I think I was... Tr- Remodeling myself on Woody Shaw, I think that he and Miles were my two big favorite players at sure. that time, and and uh, that wasn't what Horace was looking for. So sometimes he would, I would play, <laughs> I'm, I'm reading Dizzy Gillespie's autobiography right now, and he, he calls them the pretty notes. Uh, <laughs> you just like go to the piano and you figure out which ones are the pretty notes, right? And then you just hang on there. And I think he means like the unusual notes, yeah, in the chord. So I I was accentuating finding my way to be hip, but also play some of those pretty notes. Uh-huh. And he wasn't always digging it. He, and I mean, there were times when he would literally say to me, "Look, on this chord, these are the notes I'm playing. Those are the notes you have to play." Hmm, which. You know what? It, I was talking about this freedom thing earlier. That didn't make me feel unfree because it was still an improvisation. It right. was still what he was saying was like, "Be yourself, be liberated," but these are the rules. This is how your is liberation <laughs> works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, you know, I, I, I just, I took away a lot from that, and also that's a discipline if you think about it.
0: Well, it sounds, I mean, it sounds um, like he's asking you to clean up your sound to his specifications
1: well to yeah especially harmonically not to play upper extensions and not to you know try to and and those were the things that i was bred to do right so but that that was always you know and uh I, i would say the other thing that he did that was amazing was that we played his biggest hit in every set like even if it was a three set gig You played. We played song for my father in every set. Same arrangement. And I never got tired of it because he played differently every time. Like he would play an unaccompanied piano introduction. And it was always different. Yeah. Always genius. And he was a great quoter. And he was the kind of quoter where something would go by and you'd hear it. And then like two seconds later you'd go, Wow, what oh, what is that? Like one of those real ancestral tunes uh-huh. from Days of Yore or yeah, like yeah, a nursery yeah. rhyme or some real, and just put in the hippest way and an unusual way against the chords that he was playing. And he did it every night three times if, we, if, if the need be. And the arrangement was that I would get one chorus in the normal tempo and two choruses double time. Mm-hmm. Every time. <laughs> Like, not like way I'm going to gonna double it. Well, I would play around into, with yeah. how, do, how do I make that feel organic and natural? These like, are, I'm going to start playing double time two bars before and make it sound like everybody followed me into it. Right. Or I'm going to let the band go double time and I'm going to stay half time as if to say I've got my little idea over here and it's all cool. Yeah. And I thought that was really interesting to play within those structural frameworks and and try to find a new way to make it interesting every time. Yeah. I mean that sounds like
0: sounds ideal. And I have to say well, that that record song uh, song for my father. My father, the last tune on the record, Lonely Woman. Oh yeah. The yeah. solo piano piece? Yeah. Yeah. Frequently I will put that on in the mm. late afternoon mm. on loop. Oh
2: nice. I will let it
0: play through my house for 45 minutes at a time as kind of I a cleansing. Cleansing? Exactly. Yeah. It, it's it's such special and specific music
1: mm-hmm.
0: yeah so the uh, l- let me ask you i know you got to get going pretty soon um something that i'm reminded of when you talk about horace is i feel like you have done a good job of over the years over the projects incorporating new young musicians into your groups um, and obviously that's something that you experienced, whether it's Horace or, or Zorn, you know, bringing mm-hmm. you into Masada. Zorn's what mm-hmm. ten years older, mm-hmm. um, so not a huge difference, but you know, a big enough difference. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do the musicians, whether it's John Robagon or whether it's you know Jim Black with Tiny Bell, mm-hmm. has it always just been like a musical choice, or do you feel like there's something important about surrounding yourself with with younger people?
1: I think it's just that I am I love interesting musicians, and I love hearing new people play in new ways and do it well, and it doesn't matter what age they are. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's inevitable that every season new younger players come on the scene, and I hear them, and I'm like, oh, okay. I just finished this record with a band called The Westerlies. Okay. I wrote music for myself with them and a drummer named Anwar Marshall. Okay. It's coming out in October. And, you know, I I heard them because they were students of music and they asked me to come and listen and coach them. This is five, six years ago. Okay, And they're all less than half my age. (laughs) And we went on the road and they're not old enough to rent cars. (laughs) It's like that kind of thing. Yeah. And... uh, and I just I heard them, and I was like, man I, I I have to write something for this so the the ensemble it's it's me, and then there they have two trumpets and two trombones, okay, and drums, so that's the whole band it's the no second. strings, no, no string no no, no, it's three trumpets, two trombones, and yeah. drums, and I wrote a whole book of material for this format, and it came out great. And I think part of the reason that I'm so, that I feel it worked well is that meeting of, you know, they have figured out a new way to play Mm -hmm. that I don't think anyone's played before. Mm. And I got turned on by that and wrote specifically for it. And so the language that comes together is all of us really doing what we want to do and enhancing it and, and bringing it out. And I I feel like, you know, last year I did a run of gigs with Lee Konitz, Mm -hmm. who's 30 years older than me. Mm -hmm. And it was the same fascination, you know. I mean, I've heard Lee on records for years, and I've heard him playing live for years. And then to be standing there next to him trying to, like, blend with that sound, and that's what fascinates me. Mm -hmm. So I think that I don't make a conscious effort to hire younger musicians. It's more just... I like to hear new things, mm-hmm. and there's a little, more musicians than ever coming up that are yeah. doing great things. Yeah, so it's inevitable that I would want to play with them. Yeah, what was it like playing with Lee? It was. Uh, I, I mean, actually, it was great. It was a super high, but then there were certain aspects of it that he was really unhappy with. Like he doesn't play with other horn players a lot, right? Trumpet players, and uh, it was. It, it, it was. He was he was very unhappy and i sat him down and made him tell me what was not working and what I needed to do to make it better. So it became a gig about me every night trying to get inside what those instructions were and figure out how to still be myself Uh and yet play in yet another completely radically different sort of structure and framework. And that, that turns me on. I mean, I think that one of the reasons that that became John Zorn's band, Masada, was that all of us were curious about inhabiting all the different worlds that all those different tunes yeah. bring out Yeah. And, and, and not being stuck in one way of doing it, but being open and enthusiastic even to difficult as it might be find that place where Uh John was trying to send us. Yeah. You know, and and, and there's so many stories from, especially the early Masada days of John telling me, no, you know, you're not playing this tune right. And then you know, a tune would come into the book and he's like, no, that's not it. You're not playing it right. And I would try a million different ways and then he would like pull it from the sets. We're like, we're not playing that tune anymore. Then Uh the next year it would come back. Let's try this again, you Uh know, do it this way. He's like, no, that's not it. And then he would eventually find some detail, some way in to explain to me how he wanted me to play it, sure, and what he wanted it to sound like, and it was something would click, and then I would go home and like figure it out and come back, and but then every time we played that tune, I had to play, I had to remember. Oh, I have to get in that. <laughs> That's the the mindset yeah. to play this tune, and I, I really I like that. Beautiful.
0: I yeah. mean, did you when 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 you when Zorn brought you into his musical world to to play Masada? Did you? Have any idea that this was going to be a thing that you'd be doing for 20 plus years?
1: No. No, I didn't. Um, but I would say that when I first came in the band, there were already 200 tunes. Right. So I had an inkling yeah. that I was going to be learning a lot of a lot of music.
0: <laughs> I love I mean John, you know, we you know, is is an amazing genius on many different levels, mm-hmm. many different ways, but yeah. I feel like he's really good at getting the best out of people like he 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 knows how to do that he knows how to
1: push people to places i think that the reason that everybody gives so much for john is that we're all aware that john pushes himself 10 times as hard as he pushes anybody else yeah he's living that Mm -hmm. so you go up there and you're like okay I, I better live up to the. He's doing it. It's yeah. not like he's sitting there slacking off. Right. You know, and um, not everybody, I, of course, we're all different, thank God. But that level of work and effort and thought and insight and sort of profound confrontation with challenges mm-hmm. to yourself... I think that that, it's not only infectious, but also it it, it, it brings a level of respect among the players. Yeah, and People know when they go to a Zorn gig, they're going to be playing twice or three times as hard as they do, mm-hmm. usually. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I mean, even on the improv nights, Yep, it's just, um, I mean, it, it, I think that maybe the most amazing thing to me about John is that he doesn't really practice the horn anymore and sometimes we go to these gigs and we haven't played in three months and i'm thinking i'm on a plane to some remote part of the world and i'm thinking boy is, is it, that saxophone even going to work right you know <laughs> right. <laughs> did you at least try it out said, yeah now nah, it'll be fine yeah and uh again i think it's that there was a time in his life and i talked to him about this when i had him on my show um that he practiced just all day, every yeah. day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't get to that level. For a number of years. And yep. he developed all those techniques and sounds and sonic vocabulary and the the quickness and the lightness. And, and you know,
0: he's... And this is... I, I and would,
1: jazz vocabulary as well. No questions asked. Very personalized to himself. And so now that just comes out. Yeah. He doesn't have to But, practice. you know,
0: he's also... Absorbed so much information and retained mm-hmm. it and analyzed it and internalized it that he He's knows- still yes, doing he, that he can access it. Yeah, and that's what he does. You know, mm-hmm. like he those horn, you know it's not like th- those horn techniques just gather dust. He just access accesses them when he needs them.
1: Yeah, it, 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 I don't, I don't, I don't want to plug my show. I know it's from thing. the deep. Yeah, do it, but. but um, <laughs> One of the things that we got into in the conversation was the difference between composer mind and performer mind. And I was trying to... Because I think one of the things about the Masada music that makes it so strong is it is the meeting of his composition mind and his performer mind. Yeah, yeah, And they're very discrete entities for him.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Like, as a composer, he's extremely organized, and that's how he pulls off so much Mm -hmm. stuff. And he thinks... As a player, he's not organized at all. Everything is just the alchemy of the moment. Right. And it's just happening in real time and that it's always been that way for him. So I feel like the collision of those two forces is what makes Masada come alive. Yeah. That we are all sort of in the moment, like finding this sparks and finding the fire and Joey's doing this and Greg's doing that. It's a rush. John and I have this vocabulary together and... It's all within the framework of something that he spent hours by himself sitting uh-huh. down and notating and, and yeah. envisioning. Yeah, yeah. So it's... And um, strategizing, knowing what, you know. I yeah. mean, it's, all,
0: it's a lot of components. Yeah.
1: Are you still... Uh, you're still putting a lot of stuff out on Greenleaf? Yeah, yeah. All my own yeah. recordings, yeah. Like I'm to... about to record a new Soundprints record, the band that I co-lead oh. with Joe Lovano yeah it has linda O and joey baron and lawrence fields
0: that's a monster group
1: it's a fun group yeah Yeah.
0: <laughs> so you still, you still you still get to see a bit of joey now that he lives in like yeah. berlin
1: or? he moves around a lot but I, yeah. I see him from time to time like um we've been playing the bagatelles now right quartet which is really great because it's a whole new f- vocabulary for the band yeah so i see joey whenever we do that and then we we play in sound prints together um and I'm doing a project called Dizzy Atmosphere, thinking about Dizzy Gillespie next February. it uh-huh. It's gonna be me, Ambrose and Musery, Bill Frizel, Gerald Clayton, Linda O, oh, and Joey Barron. Joey played with Dizzy, right? I think he did. Yeah. 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 That's a slamming group. Well, it'll it's I'm looking forward to I mean it's it's I'm still working on the music, obviously. Sure, but, so.
0: <laughs> sure. You'll probably be working on the music the morning of the gig. I <laughs> <laughs> hope so. I hope so. All right. Well we, I think we did it
1: okay thank you
0: for coming well, over Dave. You. this was a long overdue it took due... us a long time it to took a while it to get yeah. to get sorry to
1: about away. that no man thank you so much Dave that's great I hope we get to do it again someday maybe I, I should have you on my show I how would love that?
0: that I would love that yeah It would. I would be thrilled we'll do it right here <laughs> we can do I'm it here sure or I'll yeah. come up to you
1: okay alright Dave
0: thank you <laughs> alright that was Dave Douglas how did we do did you guys enjoy that I thought it was good. I enjoyed that a lot. Uh, Thank you, Dave. I'm glad we could finally make that happen. And if the offer still stands, I'll come on your podcast anytime. You know, considering I've put up like 130-something episodes of a podcast, I'll be honest, I'm a little bugged out. I've never been on someone else's podcast. Should I be bugged out about that? Because I am. Dave Douglas, if you want to find out more about Dave go to davedouglas.com. Go to greenleafmusic.com. Check out his podcast, Noise from the Deep. If you enjoy this show, I'd imagine that you'd probably enjoy that one a lot as well. And that's it. Um, we'll talk to you guys next week. Until then, hope you're all doing well. Bye.